Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's sweet to be together today. Um, my name is Justin. I'm one of the elders and pastors here at, at Peninsula Grace. And man, just a, a such, such a sweet weekend uh, this last week we had with uh, our church family from Acts 29 all over the state coming here Friday, Saturday, and then to hear many of you, if you were here with us, uh, Ben, our, our, a pastor, a church planner from Sweden was here, our sister church plant, uh, shared with us out of God's word last week, super encouraging, if you didn't hear that, go online, uh, sermon tab, and, and you can listen to that, uh, that message, but we're going to keep on rolling through the book of John this morning, so if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to be in John, if you haven't been with us, we've just been going verse by verse through John's gospel, talking about Jesus, and we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 15 and uh, the majority of chapter 16 today together. But I was thinking about the, the, what, what John's trying to communicate in this passage, and it, it reminded me of about 12 years ago, I was coaching basketball at, at Cook Inlet Academy, and uh, I was with the high school boys, and we were playing up in Nanana, that's a little south of Fairbanks. We were in the championship game of the tournament, and we were playing Nanana themselves. So you can imagine the atmosphere in the gym. There weren't a lot of words of encouragement being shared with our team. From the bleachers. And uh, we were up about 15 points at the half. I gave the boys a, a halftime pep talk in the locker room, and I said, Men, which was generous, uh, but <laughs> I said, We're winning, but I promise there's gonna come a moment in the second half when the Nana is gonna make a, a push back, right? They're going to make a little comeback. The crowd's going to start to get into it. They're going to start cheering them, booing you. So don't freak out. Just stay the course. And if we stick to our plan, we're going to win the game. Second half, sure enough, crowd, you know, the, the Nanana goes on a run. Crowd starts to go wild. The crowd from Nanana going bananas. And David, our captain, he comes over to the bench. I call, a time, I call a timeout, bring him over. And he's got this big, goofy grin on his face, which seemed incongruous with, with what was going on. And uh, he said, Coach, it's just like you said. Like, they're coming back. Guys, we're fine. Coach said this is going to happen, right? And I'm like, I can't believe that worked. <laughs> like, and David, you could have done something about that, right? Like, play better, right? But either way, it worked, and we were able to win the championship game. And, and the, the team found confidence. David found confidence that the coach was aware that there were going to be difficulties coming and that we were able to navigate those together. And, and I see this in our, in our journey in John's gospel. We find ourselves in the upper room. Uh, John 14 to 16 is often called the upper room discourse or the pet talk, if we're going to carry this analogy out. Jesus speaking with his disciples right as he's about to die. And in John 15, we saw it two weeks ago, he said, abide in me. Stay connected with me, the vine, and you will bear fruit. It'll be for your joy. But now we're going to see Jesus say, however, there's going to be some pushback. You, you are going to experience hardship and hatred if you follow me. And he wants his disciples to think this through. Because what's going to happen? What are you going to do? When the world pushes back. And for our author, John, this wasn't just a hypothetical. John's writing this decades after Jesus went back to heaven. And we've already seen great pushback from Jewish and Gentile haters. John himself is going to be boiled in oil alive and live to tell the tale. So Jesus is speaking to his apprentices before it happens. And like I was in the locker room, he's saying, but my beloved like whatever's happening to you, you're going to experience pushback. But what you're experiencing is not outside of your king's knowledge nor control. 
take heart, trust me. And when I was talking to the team in the locker room, I could prepare them for, for pushback, but I couldn't ultimately guarantee victory, right? How, Jesus, though, he could. And in, at the end of his pep talk, we're going to hear him say, have courage because I have conquered the world. Today's passage is going to ask something of us. It's going to demand a decision. Well, you and I, if we're claiming to be followers of Jesus, are we ready for the pushback? Are we counting the cost uh, of following Jesus even when there's hatred, even when it requires deep courage? Because as they say, haters going to hate, 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 hate. Now, I'm a 90s kid, so like I knew that the hip-hop song, haters, they're going to hate, ballers, they're going to ball, right? Any with me and the... Okay, right. Super Bowl champion Taylor Swift comes in and messes it all up, but that's cool. Uh, in today's passage, here's what I'm seeing. I see Jesus address why his followers are going to receive this hatred and how to respond to that hatred. And I think this is just as relevant for us in 2024. So first of all, why, why are Jesus' followers hated by the world. I see three reasons in the text. The first one is because Jesus himself was hated. So if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to be in, I've got the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, open in front of me, but to encourage each of us to be in the Word, would invite you to open your copy, phone, hard copy. We've got some extras out in the uh, foyer in a, in, a, in a little bookshelf if you'd like to grab one and follow along. John 15, starting in verse 18, he says, if the world, Jesus talking to his disciples, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. So Jesus says here, the world's going to hate you. It also hates me. And, and wh what is he talking about with the world here? Well, there, that in context, that can refer to the physical earth. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying plants and platypuses are going to rise up and, and oppose you. He's also not just saying like every human in the world. Sometimes we talk like when God so loved the world, like everybody. Because we know some people will hate and push back. Some people won't. Often in John's gospel, contextually, when we see, he uses the word the world or the phrase the world, D.A. Carson says he's referring to this idea of the created moral order that's an active rebellion against its God. So in other words, the environment we're living in, in a fallen world, has the, the hearts of sinful humans have a bent toward rebellion uh, against their maker. Hearts that don't trust and obey God. And so, of course, this is every human heart, right? And we're born into the world this way. If we are not renewed by the miracle of Jesus' resurrection life, we find ourselves hostile toward a God, the God. Jesus here, he says, uh, rebellious humanity is going to hate you um, because you're my followers and they hate me. So then we got to back up and say, well, why does the world hate Jesus? Well, he, he, he says one of the things he speaks to in, in, our, in the same gospel, in chapter 7, he says, the world hates me. Why? Because I testify about it, that its works are evil. And the world doesn't like that. The, the, the light came into the world, but the darkness didn't want to be exposed. Remember when he's talking to Nicodemus late at night, and this is what he says. Everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it. Why? So that his deeds may not be exposed. And we've all experienced that. Like you've done something or maybe you're currently doing something that you don't want the light of day to expose. Something we're hiding behind our backs because we know if it came into the light, it would bring us shame and embarrassment. And that's why we hide it. That's why we justify our actions. Might have even deceived ourselves. We're, we're fine. It's good. Or we get super angry and defensive. If, if some light slips through the cracks, like if, if that is exposed. So Jesus says here, guys, heads up. 
if you follow me, if you follow my way, if you associate with me the exposing light, the darkness is going to hate you as well. The second reason I see here in the text is because his followers are not of this world. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So, so you hear Jesus in this language. I, I remember uh, growing up, my brother and I would often try to talk my sister into doing things that our parents told us not to do. I know they said go to bed, but Janelle, let's stay up late and, you know, like read the Bible more or something like that, I'm sure. Um, and Janelle would be like, no, no, mom and dad said no. And, and so she just chose not to engage with, with us. And uh, so then we'd quickly turn on her. Oh, you baby, right? Mama's girl, wham, you know, and, and super mature things like that. And I was probably 18, but, um, <laughs> and I, but what's going on? She wasn't even telling us not to do it, but just simply her choosing not to participate in that ticked us off. And her right decisions were convicting us of our wrong decisions. We just didn't have the maturity to realize it, right? So we just, boo, we hate you, Janelle. Um, she was, so simply by, like, just loyally following Jesus, there, there's a world that, that is, the, the, the rebellious world is, is going to push back. And they're going to say, well, you think you're better than us, Right? You and your fancy Jesus ways. There's going to be this, this conviction that takes place just simply not participating in the things that the, the world's doing. But Jesus is so quick to remind us here that his followers are actually not better than anybody else in the world. Right? We were of the world, but notice what he said. I have chosen you out of it. You didn't work your way out of it. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't do anything to deserve Jesus' rescue. We were saved by grace not by works. I was one of the haters too. And here Jesus is saying, we're we know we're just as sinful as the next guy. We, we just found the rescue, right? That's the difference. But you will incur hatred from those in the dark. And then finally, the, the, I see Jesus saying, because the world is alienated from the Father. Look at verse 21. He says, but they, they, they will do all these things uh, to you on my account. Why? Because they don't know the one who sent me, who, who sent Jesus, the Father. They don't know the Father. Now, this was a first century burn because his primary their primary persecutors are going to be who? The Jewish people. If there's anybody who claims to know Yahweh that is going to be his covenant people. And what Jesus is saying here is you don't know, you don't rightly perceive or understand or even deeper, you don't intimately have relationship with the Father. And so Jesus here says, you don't know him, therefore you don't trust him, you don't obey him. And Jesus is saying the world is not ultimately hating you, they're hating my dad. This is, this is all, all sin is ultimately rebellion against God, stiff-arming our Father. And I've seen this. I've done this. And I've sat knee-to-knee knee with people, pleading them to repent of a particular sin and just seeing that stony glare right back at, at me. And there's so much anger, and sometimes it comes out in hard words, like directed at me. But I know that ultimately, this is an unwillingness. I mean, I don't know their heart completely, but if it truly is unrepentant sin, that's an inability to trust the Father's heart and obey him. 
in repentance. Jesus goes on and says a couple of weird things here. So verse 22, at first glance, he says, if, if I had not come and spoke to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Well, what's that mean? Now, they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else had done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated me and my father. Now, if you're like me, I, first time I read that, I was like, what is, what's, what is Jesus saying here? He says, if I hadn't come, they wouldn't be guilty of their sin. So what does that mean? That they were doing great, but then Jesus came and messed it up? Well, we know that all have sinned, fall short, like everyone. So he's certainly not saying they weren't guilty of any sin. But Jesus says here in verse 22, I came and spoke these words. Verse 24, I did these wonders. And I think what he's getting at is they are specifically guilty of rejecting Jesus. That he's come to them and they have no, they can't plead ignorance. That he's now shown him the, full, the fullness of God's revelation is seen in Jesus. They've heard the words. They've seen him prove himself through his signs and wonders. And now he's saying that you're, you're guilty of rejecting me. And to reject Jesus is the only sin that can't be forgiven. Because when we reject Jesus, we are simultaneously rejecting the only curse of, of the, on, the only sin, the only cure, there it is, the only cure available for our sin. It's healing and it's forgiveness. And then Jesus finishes up the thought, verse 25, he says, but this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled, they hated me for no reason. Jesus, I think, is saying here, he quotes, he's actually quoting Psalm 69 here, these are David's words, and he's using the Jews' own scripture uh, to point out their hearts. David had been hated for no, no legit reason. He hadn't done anything wrong. And here Jesus is saying similarly, I have not wronged anybody. The hatred is unfounded. Also, I think there's a, a prophecy fulfillment here to show that man, God's not getting caught off guard by this. The pushback from the world is ultimately going to lead to a crucifixion, but that's precisely God's plan, not a deviation from it. Now, it's important to note here, Jesus is teaching his followers, you're going to receive hatred from the rebellious world because they don't want there to be a God, right? So, of course, they're not going to want to know his followers or follow his followers. But we need to remember, we need to be hated by the world for the right reasons, not for the wrong reasons. We need to be hated for the same reasons that Jesus is hated. So, to be hated because you're being a jerk to somebody, and then be like, blessed are the persecuted. No, you're just being a jerk face, right? Like, stop it. Like that, we can be hated for the wrong, we can be hypocrites and be hated, and you probably deserve some of that, right? Well, what Jesus is talking about here, and, and you know where Jesus receives most of his hatred? From the self-righteous crowd, from the religious majority, and his scandalous love for, for sinners. He's called a friend of sinners by, by his fellow countrymen, and that wasn't meant as a compliment. And Jesus dined with sinners. Jesus rubbed shoulders with them. And he didn't sin with them. He dined with them. It's important to distinguish that. He was never affirming their sin. But he loved them enough to come to die for them. And he loved sitting down at the table with them. We're called to be friends of sinners. We're called to tell them about Jesus. We're called to model his love because we are no better than them, right? We come humbly like Jesus came. And I just want to say, we don't have to worry about continually reminding people of our stances on things, Okay? The world knows what we're against. We don't need placards. We, we don't need to lead with that. We lead with love. We're not compromising on the truth, guys. But the world knows. Like the world knows. Let's love. 
In fact, that's where Jesus goes next. How do we respond when there is hatred? I see four things he points out in our response to the world's hatred. The first one is, don't freak out. Verses 1 through 4. He says, I've told you, chapter 16, I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogue. So this is primarily here persecution from their fellow Jews. Ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you, and that's probably a reference more to the, the Romans, uh, you will, they will think that he's uh, is offering a service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me, but I've told you these things, so when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus says, I want you to remember because this is coming. That when it happens, you'll remember. I, 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 I predicted this. That you won't be caught off guard by it. Just like at halftime with my pep talk and David's response, we can say, Jesus, you said this was coming. This isn't outside of, of your providence when, when the world is booing us. In fact, John repeats this in his first letter when he says, don't be surprised brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to receive that same treatment that he received. And notice why Jesus says in verse 1, why does he say he's telling them this? He says, I'm telling you these things to keep you from stumbling. Um, another translation says, to, so that you will not fall away. I love the way D.A. Carson spoke to this. He said, uh, the, the greatest danger the disciples will confront uh, from the opposition of the world isn't death. Remember, Jesus said, the worst thing the world can do is kill you, which isn't great, right? But like he says, when you, if, you, if they kill your body, you get to go home and be with Jesus. He says the, the greatest danger isn't death itself, but it's apostasy. Now, that's just a big word that means to abandon your beliefs, to, to stop following Jesus. He says, I'm telling you these things. So when you receive suffering, hatred and pushback, you don't freak out, think maybe I'm not the king, and then abandon following me. And this is... This is a real danger that we're, we're facing. Um, there was, there's a book that recently came out called The Great De-Churching um, that we're seeing the fastest religious shift in American history going on right now. Uh, we've experienced this, and, and I, I did a typo, and I forgot to change it here, but 40 million Americans, that's, that's one in every six, left the church in the past 40 years. It's actually the past 30 years. So one in every six Americans, uh, that's 40 million total, who were going to church, have left the church. Now, we're not equating attending a Sunday morning service with following Jesus, but this is telling, right? And then certainly the two overlap. Ben warned us last week, Sweden, in one to two generations, went from the country that was sending out more missionaries than any other nation to now being almost completely a post-Christian, we've moved on from Jesus country. A sober warning for us. If our seed doesn't have firm roots, if we're just kind of playing a game outwardly and we don't really believe this thing, I mean, we're going we're gonna to wither and die from persecution, uh, from just the worries of life, from, from the comforts of this life distracting us, and we will not bear fruit. And I've seen this. I've seen this tendency in my own heart. I've seen new believers or somebody kind of getting back on track with Jesus. There can be an initial, like, excitement but then inevitably there's going to be some pushback. Novelty wears off. Um, hard times hit. You've got a gnawing sin that just won't go away or whatever. And the question is, are we going to continue to bear fruit? Are we going to continue to follow Jesus? Which is why it's so important. It's why Jesus reminds us here. And why we need to remind each other. The hard times come. The hard times are coming. And don't freak out. 
And this is why Jesus points us to the necessary power that he was sending us through his spirit, the counselor. And this is where he leads us next. Let the spirit do his truth testifying and convicting work in us and through us. Look at back up to the end of chapter uh, 15, verse 26. He says, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. So he says his, his, he is leaving, but his presence isn't. Uh, Jesus, in the form of the, uh, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, God himself, will be in and through, uh, working in and through his disciples. And what does he say? His job is to testify, to tell about who, who Jesus is. And this is the Spirit's central work. Every human on earth, sooner or later, has to reckon with the audacious claims that Jesus has made. We are sinners who are in need of a Savior. There's one way into right relationship with, with the Father. He says, I'm leaving you, but I'm sending you the Spirit. And to pick it up down in verse 8, he says what the Spirit's going to do. When he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they don't believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you'll no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, we could spend a whole sermon unpacking exactly what he might be getting at in those three ideas. But I want to summarize it this way. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is saying, we are all wrong, and there's one way to be made right with God. That we have a wrong view of our sin. We have a wrong view of how, right, the righteousness. is just a Bible word that's saying being in right relationship with God or others. And a wrong view about the judgment to come, how this thing's all going to go down in the end. And the Holy Spirit isn't coming. This conviction isn't, ha-ha, you're wrong, ha-ha, you're wrong. This is an urgent pointing people toward reality. And this is how we need to see other people. That just like us, they had a wrong view of ourselves, of our God, and the way to be rescued and reunited with him. And so we, we see other people not as the enemy, but as fellow, fellow humans who are prisoners that need freed just like we did. And allow the spirit, by the way, the spirit is the one that convicts, right? We love, we, we speak the truth. But the Spirit is the one that's going to convict hearts. And then in verse 12, he says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. <laughs> this is all you can handle for now. Verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. Because the Spirit's job is to guide us into all truth. Now that truth, and he even says about what things to come. I don't think this is the Holy Spirit whispering secrets into our ears, like which spouse to choose, right? The one on the left. That was helpful for me with identical twins, but that's a different story. Um, he, did, he wasn't there telling us, you know, a lot of times, what's my vocation going to be? Be a barber, right? You'll, be, you'll love it. Like, Jesus, the Spirit's work is to point us to the capital T truth, to Jesus himself. And he's going to help us know how to live out, how to unpack everything that Jesus taught about how to live, the example he laid down for us. As we become more like Christ, it's going to be the Spirit that's doing that changing of our hearts toward that end. And specifically here, I think the Spirit's going to point us to the beauty of the way that Jesus responded to the world's opposition and rejection and hatred of him. Because what, what do we see from Jesus' example? How does Jesus respond to the haters? Because that's going to be very informative to how we're supposed to respond to the hatred. 
to the very one who betrayed him, what did Jesus do? He took a towel and he washed his feet. What did Jesus do to the very ones who were nailing him to the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing. And praise God, because I was one of the haters in the crowd that Jesus forgave and washed my feet. So the question is, how do I respond to the haters? I know how my, my fleshly heart wants to respond. Vengeance is mine, says the Justin, right? Do I trust the just judge who one day is going to sort all this out and make all the wrong things right and all the sad things untrue? That's not my job. And I'll be honest, and I'm going to make a sweeping statement here, but watching the church in America, how we responded to some of the teaspoons of pushback that we got through COVID with some of the lockdowns, some of the laws that have been passed that we don't see lining up with God's heart. I mean, it makes me think, like, how are we going to respond to the big pushbacks that are going to come? If Sweden really is our future, it's not getting better. The Holy Spirit it's going to be so faithful here to point us to Jesus and his scandalous grace and forgiveness that we're called to embody and declare to the world. But that starts with us finding joy in Jesus. And that's the next thing I see him talking about, is to discover Jesus' untouchable joy in the midst of sorrow. Look at verse 16. The disciples get confused, right? It's par for the course. Jesus says, in a little while, you'll no longer see me. Again, in a little while, you will see me. So you won't see me, and then you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us? In a little while, you'll not see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. They said, what is this he is saying? In a little while, we don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, right? He saw the steam coming out of their ears. And so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while, you will not see me again. Again, in a little while, you will see me. I feel like John could have done that in a more concise way. Um, Verse 20, truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. So what's he talking about here? You and I have the benefit of hindsight, right? We know that Jesus dies and rises again, right? If, if, you, if that's a spoiler for you in John's gospel, the book's been out for a while, okay? You, that's on you. But the disciples still didn't have a category. They're still working out how the king who's supposed to come and bring peace is going to suffer and die, rise again, leave, bring, send the comforter, the spirit. Like they, they, that's not clear to them yet. And I think what he's saying here, you're gonna, you, you won't see me for a little while, meaning he's going to die. That's what's most eminently happening here. He's going to die, but then you'll see me again. He's going to rise again, right? We know that's how the next few days is going to work out. The world is going to rejoice, he says. The world's going to rejoice because they think the light of the world's been snuffed out. But he says three days later, that light is going to come back stronger and brighter than ever. And, and then he points out, he says in verse 21, he says, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering. Is that true, women? I don't know if that, that is. Uh, <laughs> because of the joy that a person has uh, been born into the world. I, I love that analogy. Like, it's not that you forgot how hard it was, but now you're holding this gift of life the joy that came through suffering. And he says in verse 22, so you also will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. And I love this line. He says, no one will take away your joy from you. He says, just like the mom finds joy because of the presence of this present that she's holding in her arms. 
And he says, when I come back, I will be in your midst. Now we know how it goes, right? Jesus comes back for 40 days, but then he ascends to the Father. He leaves again. What does he send? For all who will place their faith in Jesus, he gifts us with his spirit. He's been called portable Jesus. That we have Jesus, the the spirit of God himself, living in us. And just like with the mother and her little one, we have the joy of the personal presence of Jesus with us, in us, forever, and nobody can touch that joy. Paul calls him the down payment of of the hope we have in a kingdom that's coming and that will never end. Hallelujah. I was telling somebody recently that I think my my favorite Hawaiian island is Kauai. We got some Kauaians in the house today. Woot, woot. Um, But I said, baby, it's... They were super shy about that. Um, don't be. It's a great place. I said, it's not only is it my favorite Hawaiian island, I think it might also just be my favorite place on earth. And then I realized, well, no duh. I was on my honeymoon, right? <laughs> like it was me and my brand new bride, suffice to say, enjoying our time in Kauai, right? Now, we could have been anywhere. We could have spent a week down in the Soldatna dump and been like, it was amazing, right? <laughs> what a beautiful place, right? That banana peel really brings out your eyes, sweetheart, right? Because I was with Jill. Like, that was the gift. And what Jesus, I think, is he's getting at here is when I rise and I give you my personal presence that nobody can ever take away, you are going to be experiencing a joy that will never be able to be taken away. Now, does that mean we're not going to be sad? No, of course not. We all, that's our lived experience. We live in a world that's broken, full of suffering, But what he's saying is that's a surface suffering and that we can experience in Christ a deeper flowing joy that can never be touched. Why? Because of his last point that he makes in this locker room pep talk. Courageously cling to the conquering king's promise. Last few sentences here. In the locker room, Jesus is saying, man, the enemy is going to rally. You're, they're going to be pushed back. But take heart because your coach knows how the game is going to end. And I see two things. The first thing I see is Jesus modeling the very courage he's going to call them to. Look at verse, down at the end here, verse 32. He says, indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. He says, even you, my closest friends, are about to bail on me. And we know the story, right? They all run. But, he says, I'm not actually alone. Because my father will never abandon me. Jesus was the only human that could ever say this perfectly and all the time. I trust my father. He's for me. His promises are true. His love will see me through. And so because of that, he courageously faces death because he knows on the other side of the sorrow, on the other side of the cross is a joy, an untouchable joy that will be his afterward. And so Jesus models this for the disciples, but then he calls them to follow him in and through this path. Look at the last verse. It says, I have told you these things. Here's why I've said all these things to you in the locker room. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. And I, man, Jesus, do you notice he promises suffering here? 
And we see this over and over again. Like we're pro- if we're going to follow Jesus in this world, there will be suffering. That's why he says don't freak out. But he also promises this peace. This peace that's coming. Why? Because of the last five words of his talk. He says, I have conquered the world. Now, maybe your translation says overcome. The idea here is that it's the Greek word where they got Nike, the Greek goddess of victory, and where we get our really cool shoes. And I love this. Jesus calls his shot before he ever takes it. Do you realize he didn't say, take heart, be courageous, because I will overcome the world. I'm about to overcome the world. I might overcome the world. He says, I have conquered the world. He uses the past tense. The future is as good as the past. That, that Jesus is saying, my victory is guaranteed and everlasting. And unlike my locker room talk, I couldn't guarantee the boys a victory, right? But Jesus could. He could actually say, not just do it, but I just did it, right? And this is our good news, brothers and sisters, and those who are not yet my brothers and sisters. Jesus hung on the cross to pay for my rebellion, our rebellion against the Father. And then he rose from the grave to, to achieve Nike victory over our sin and death, to reunite us, the former runaways and rebels, back into peace, a wholeness and intimacy with our dad. And what Jesus says here is, you don't have to worry about this being a tug of war, the world or my father, the world or, or me, who's going to win out in the end? He says, I have overcome the world. It's game over. And the reason that we don't have to freak out is because Jesus gifts us his untouchable joy in the midst of sorrow. The coach huddles us up into the locker room, and, and he's calling us to three things here. And I, I see from the text, and I want to encourage my heart and yours with as we close down here. First one is to point people to Jesus. Point people to Jesus. Um, Jesus came. He came to this earth up close and personally. He came to a world of rebels, like people who hated him, who rejected him. And he announced the good news to them. And I I think about my own life, like, am I in earshot of people who need to hear this good news? Am I in arm's length of people who need to be embraced by their father? And I know I'm not a natural evangelist. That's that's not me. Um, and, and, And I live in a church bubble as a pastor that can be sometimes really hard to pop. But, I, but I've been asking myself this lately, and one of the things I've just been praying is, Lord, would you give me the opportunity to share uh, Jesus with somebody once every week? And and last couple of weeks I've been praying that, and, and it has not happened yet, but just starting with that prayer point, and I'll tell you what that has done is it's changed the way that I see people. And when I walk into Walmart, it's no longer just you're in my way, Right? And looking for opportunities, thinking about how I can intentionally put myself in, in proximity, in relationship with, with others who so desperately need to know Jesus. And then we need to expect some pushback. Jesus is promising here there will be suffering if you walk this road. You're going to speak and, most importantly, live out a very unpopular message. And so you will get pushback. And he says, I told you this is coming, so don't freak out. People don't like the light exposing the darkness. 
And I'm going to tell you, my experience has been some of this pushback is going to be from the religious establishment because we're scandalously near people that they're saying we're supposed to condemn. Like, we need to learn how to be friends with sinners. And again, Jesus modeled that we're friends of sinners. We're, not, we're dining with sinners. We're not sinning with sinners. But if we don't develop relationship and show people in the world that we actually love them, that we actually like them, they're not going to give a rip about what we have to say to them. We're loving people the way that our Christ loved and loves us. And I might even venture to say, if, if we're not experiencing any pushback, it might be, it might be because we're not scandalously loving other people and because we're not proclaiming the gospel. If we speak the truth and live it out, we're going to get in trouble. Jesus promised us that. We don't go looking for it, but as we live this way, we can expect it. But, and the final point here, is to fall on Jesus. One of the things I love in this passage is Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to abandon me. He knew that. He knew he'd be betrayed, denied, abandoned by his closest friends. And he, but what we see in our merciful, faithful Savior is that he doesn't abandon them. I love when Timothy says that, that even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And what good news, because we're going to over and over again ignore the Spirit's promptings to lead us to truth, to point us toward uh, a conversation with somebody else, to, to follow what, what he's calling us into. And even when we abandon Jesus, he's not going to let go of us. And his Spirit will graciously allow us to fall on his peace, safe and secure in the Father's arms. So the call is to go out courageously, to love like Jesus first loved us, even though haters going to hate, 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 because Christ has already won, 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 won. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world, knowing he was going to receive pushback, knowing that he would be killed to save a wretch like me. And Father, my prayer is first and foremost that there's somebody in this room that has not received your free gift of love through Jesus, that today would be the day to set another captive free, to join us, the former renegades and rebels who now know God as Father. And my prayer is also for the believers in this room that are receiving um, forms of suffering, that can come from persecution, from preaching the gospel, that can come from just living in a fallen world. Father, would you give our hearts courage to know that there is one who has come and who has conquered, one who has overcome. And I ask that we would be so taken by the person of Jesus. We can't but help follow him and invite other people around us to follow us following him, that we would see the world around us the way you see them, Father. Image bearers that you bled and died for. Would you burden our heart with what burdens yours? And as that we walk through the suffering, as we obey that, that we'll experience your peace that passes understanding and the joy that cannot be touched. Pray these things in the name of the conquering king. And all God's people said.